0: Welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Zoe Griffith. I'm really pleased today to have a chance to talk to Professor Nancy Um about her work on the material culture of commerce and exchange in the Indian Ocean. Nancy is a professor of art history at SUNY Binghamton. uh, And I think the work she does is incredibly creative, will be very interesting to our listeners, um, is really very needed actually right now in um, a sort of moment of crossroads maybe in Middle East studies and Indian Ocean studies but in the way that she blends and sort of subverts more traditional geographies and methodological boundaries in the fields. So her first book, The Merchant Houses of Mocha, came out in 2009. It's a really fascinating study of merchant architecture in the Indian Ocean in the port city of Mocha in modern-day Yemen. I think it was very inspiring for me when I read it in thinking about taking the everyday experience of um, trade and exchange seriously and trying to understand um, the social experience of something that we think about in kind of history of capitalism, more abstract terms. Uh, And then her most recent book came out in 2017 and sort of uh, grew out of the first project, I think. It's called Shipped But Not Sold, Material Culture and the Social Protocols of Trade During Yemen's Age of Coffee. And it looks at the interactions of an incredibly diverse, underappreciated network of merchants in mocha in the first half of the 18th century. And there was a line in the introduction, I think, that that encapsulated it very well, the idea of global history on a small scale, which I guess comes from Francesca Trivolato. So we'll get into this uh, global history on a small scale. Nancy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for speaking with me, Zoe. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to talk about this book and to follow up on work that, you know, I thought I'd closed up a little while ago, but to open it up, exactly, but to open it up again and to um, think about it and to reflect. That.
0: So, You open this most recent book, Ship But Not Sold, with I think a really uh, another great and very evocative term, um, promiscuous objects. Uh, And so maybe we can sort of launch into the topic by just having you explain what are promiscuous objects, how did they inspire the study? Sure thank you. Uh,
1: that is not my term though it oh. is Nick Thomas's term um, uh, when he taught an anthropologist who I think has done uh, some of the most interesting work in thinking about how objects move between different states right between commodity states, between gift states mm-hmm. uh, between states of presentation and display to the state of becoming an heirloom object. And that was always really a useful concept for me um, in thinking about a world in which objects and material culture uh, played a huge role. And obviously we think about commodities in a trading uh, society, uh, but I became aware that there were objects that were sometimes commodities and sometimes gifts and sometimes played other roles in terms of presentation and consumption, and that this world of goods was much richer than just that, which was bought and sold on the marketplace.
0: What is the specific environment that we're talking about? What work are these promiscuous objects doing in Mocha?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, it's funny because um, it, it kind of brings me back also to, my, to the uh, earlier work because, you know, the first thing that they do is they uh, go to the house of the governor, right? And the architecture of Mocha is on one hand distinctive, on mm. the other hand, absolutely ordinary to mm. these merchants because mm. it stands out from the um, other buildings from in inland Yemen. It looks different from Yemeni architecture. But it also carries these very particular visual features that would make these houses recognizable to a merchant who would come from the east coast of Africa. From uh, Western India mm-hmm. uh, and possibly mm-hmm. even further field, and so there's like certain kinds of signs that mark the merchant house, um, and so these ha- houses would be recognizable to someone who's come from afar. Yeah, so those, ha- so the house is important, right? So it's this, um, you know, and remember, how that, like, having this house already signals your inclusion in this merchant class, right? Right. right. Um, and so uh, merchants would arrive, and they would first go to the governor's house, and the governor would offer them um, a few. Uh, uh, uh objects of consumption that are going to sound very familiar to anyone who is uh, you know who knows the rituals of consumption in Yemen but i'm going to say my view is that they are special in the context of the merchant experience so a cup of uh coffee uh, i want to say that this is not uh the black coffee that we expect to get at uh, Starbucks mm-hmm. or somewhere mm-hmm. else is this kishar, which is made from the husk of the coffee bean that is consumed only in Yemen. If you go to Yemen today, very very difficult to get a cup of of boon, uh, ah. you know, kah- uh, or kahwa made yeah. from boon, but from but you'd be offered kishur, yeah. which often has um, uh, added to it cardamom and ginger and other spices, a lot of sugar as well <laughs> to <laughs> make it palatable. It's yeah. much lighter than coffee okay. too. Is it so caffeinated? It is. It's okay. got trace amounts of caffeine. Okay. Uh, but so the merchant would be offered kishur, um, and you know, this is important. It's a waste product of the <laughs> coffee trade, right? If you think about it, no one drinks the yeah. husk of the coffee bean. Right. Um, already kind of signaling the fact that many merchants, not all of them, but many of them were coming precisely for Coffee and to engage in that trade, Uh, particularly in my period, which was the moment in really the kind of rise in the coffee market, although it would fall very soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they would be offered a pipe, you know, so uh, tobacco, which of course is a New World product that was being localized throughout the Middle East, uh, and certainly by this time was. But you know, to me, it just kind of signals these kinds of distant connections, right? And these Uh, objects that have been obtained through these encounters Mm -hmm. Uh, always sprinkle rose water in the hands, Mm. and you know, of course, the rose water um had come from uh, from uh India and and or Iran oh and we hear okay. about many many of these merchants came including the Europeans but also the gujarati ships with rosewater on it so they've got so they're being offered uh, an object or a commodity rather that they are carrying on their ships mm-hmm. which is signaling the receptivity to this good um and there's also then the burning of incense and the incense that we're talking about is particularly um uh oud uh, which you know, is, has come from the East as well and also was brought by many of these merchants too. And so what I see again is, is these, uh, the integration of these commodities in these merchant ceremonies, which were absolutely requisite to start the trade. And so after they were ex- you know, welcomed in the governor's house like this, whenever they go to visit another merchant, and uh, they would engage in these same ceremonies that I would argue similarly have particular meaning in this context even the vessels that they were using for them right. many of them which were porcelain coming from the east as well also on indian ocean ships you know you know these are all weighty and salient to me not just kind of accessories that were part of these um you know they they were um it was a way of signaling an integration to this world of trade and exchange and commerce when we think about um material culture, and merchants. It's often framed in the context of luxury, right? So, uh, you know, in the kind of traditional casting of it, Merchants gain a certain status from their trade, which is, uh, you know, premised on uh, you know having attained enough wealth to supersede their status as mere Mm -hmm. merchants, right? And then they begin to consume to, uh, you know, as acts of consumption and to also reflect this newly attained status. So that's the conventional uh, way in which we think about how merchants have used material culture and art. I try to reverse that with the sense that, first of all, merchant status is not stable, in, and especially in the topsy-turvy world of the Indian Ocean mm-hmm. where a shipwreck, a pirate attack, uh, even you know a ship that has gone off course can really affect a merchant's uh, reputation, that merchant's livelihood. And so uh, my feeling is that merchant status was always unstable. You mm. could be a great merchant, mm-hmm. but you always had to then perform the kinds of social activities of a great merchant to be able to represent yourself as such. Mm-hmm. And so these material objects then were these props in this performance of these activities of merchants. So being a you know, major merchant in Mocha or anywhere else was not being like a tenured professor at a <laughs> university <laughs> where you, know, you, 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 n- you can never get fired, <laughs> <Right>. exactly. <laughs> it was something that every time you came into the port yeah. that year, you yeah. had to represent yourself on those terms. And yeah. we're dealing, in terms of merchant's worlds, Um, you know, our understanding should be that these are groups of people who come together in the interest of trade, they certainly don't speak the same languages. Right. Uh, they certainly don't come from the same places. They're not from the same religions. We already know this. Um, but they have to find a way to be able to communicate who they are to each other. And right. so this is a very kind of basic premise that um, I think we could probably think about in other, uh, in other places as well. I just looked at it at, at Mo- in Mocha. And, um, and really, I saw these objects in playing this active role in helping merchants signal who they were. It was very obvious when someone uh, disembarked at the Port of Mocha who they were, if they were a merchant or if they were uh, a lo- you know, a lowly fisherman or sailor, mm, mm-hmm. um, you know, or if they were a broker and you know, and there was already a kind of accounting of who that person would be and you know, who would be worthy of trade essentially. Right. You know, issues of creditworthiness, trust all come up here. And so the idea is that these objects are active in helping merchants sustain the status and that uh again it was very, very unstable and that you could never uh, you could never um, allow yourself to be perceived as otherwise.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were mentioning or that it's a very unstable, sort of on an individual level, it's a very unstable um, lifestyle, but that you have, as you say, these yearly cycles of arrival, of ceremony. So maybe we can just, um, because I think it's really great to um, just give people the texture of what's going on there. It's such an evocative place. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So um, first of all, I have to say the temporal aspect is really important, right? Yeah. Because when we th- you know, think particularly about the wind cycles that would bring the merchants, the major merchants, into town mm-hmm. every year uh, in January and February, okay. right? And then they would... trade straight through uh, the summer and they would leave, you know, you had to get out of that city by August or else you would be stuck there until the next year, right? right, You know, unless you wanted to make, you know, short haul journeys. And so it was very much temporally defined. And to that extent, um, you know, when these merchants would come in, it would be just a major event and it would completely change life in that city. There are, of course, permanent residents of Mm -hmm, Mocha mm -hmm. um, and and the port, but uh, life changed absolutely during the high trade season. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the merchants we're talking about, definitely the most important merchants in Mocha were the, uh, the major ship-owning merchants from Gujarat. And we hear about uh, these merchants in the Red Sea and the kind of profile that they cut on that side of the world. Um, and so they were extremely important. So they had very wide-reaching networks. And was that and in search of coffee or... Well, it's interesting because, you know, they're often called brokers, okay. right? And they're certainly, they certainly served as the brokers for the Europeans. And so some of them were brokers, but some of them also, but they also traded on their own mm-hmm. terms. And some of them were also artisans mm-hmm. as well. So they had a, a number of different roles um, that were all kind of associated with trade and artisanry, um, but... Uh, th- so when they were dealing with the brokerage, it was a lot of times for these major merchants, whether it were the you know, ship owners from Gujarat or other parts of the Gulf and the Red Sea, or for the Europeans. Of course, the problem is we hear the most about the activities Indeed. of the <laughs> So we are in this position where we have really lively and rich documents that were left by, namely the Dutch and the English East mm-hmm. India companies, to a lesser extent the French and some private merchants, Um, But we know as voluminous as those documents are, they are not reflective of the full economic life of that city. And so we have to use them to think about uh, what merchant life was and to also understand what their limitations are. And that's the big challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, I uh never set out to be a historian of european expansion but when i encountered these documents i realized it was an opportunity that they made available certain perspectives that i would never get from other documents particularly inland arabic material right. m- material in arabic and so um it was
0: something that i you know have struggled with in oh, many absolutely. ways absolutely and i think um i mean i study commercial networks in the eastern mediterranean and some french and egyptian trade and it's not quite to the same degree there's plenty of material um, from the ottomans and egyptians but the nature is so different and the sort of the lists and the statistics and the regularity is very different so i think it'll be very helpful for lots of our listeners to hear from you like you know as a as an art historian as a historian of material culture what can you do with voluminous european documents really to get at like material culture of mocha
1: yeah. So, so uh, maybe if I could just start by saying a little bit about these documents Please. because they Absolutely. are, you know. Um, so the uh, most voluminous ones are the ones from the uh, Dutch East India Company or the VOC held in the Hague mm-hmm, today, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, those records are just amazing in their continuity. There is a um, uh, one type of document called a dog register, or the it's they're essentially diaries, right? You know, every single, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, where we hear. All of this, the petty nitty-gritty of things that happen at that port, things that you you know, you know, that you almost don't even want to hear about, right? You know, just recording from this eyewitness perspective. Oh, wait, so
0: each person kept one of these, or? No, oh, okay. it was for the company. Okay. But, um, but, so,
1: But it is uh, still, you know, and I mean, it, it's very funny, because sometimes you'll you know, read along, particularly during the low trade season, they'll say, you know, nothing happened today for like a period of three weeks, right? And we get a sense that, you know, they were pretty bored sometimes in Mocha. Um, but sometimes when they do talk about, you know, uh, engagements that they have with the governor of Mocha or with other merchants or just, you know, swarms of locusts coming mm. in and you just just things that they observe. Mm. Um they're they're very rich mm-hmm. materials. But I will say, um, you know, I've been working with these materials for almost 20 years now. Um I think I've only just started to understand them, you know, in terms of really um not just what they're telling us, because that that was kind of the allure of them for right. me initially. Right. Um but the logic of the documents, right? And how we have to read them as historians mm-hmm. and um what sometimes what they say uh, and you know how to interpret what they say, but also sometimes you have to really see what they're doing as well, and you sometimes there's a big break between those mm. two, which is very interesting mm-hmm. um and in terms of material culture and even architecture, mm-hmm. which is what I dealt with um in uh, the work on uh, the earlier work on MOcha. Um, you know, they don't tell you anything that you want to hear as an architectural <laughs> historian, right? You know, you're like, <laughs> What is it made out of? Just tell me how high is oh, it? Wow. Give me, you know, that kind of thing. But um but they do tell you on an offhand manner you know, in an offhand way. How they were using these buildings, right? And you know, you can figure out that where they had a room because they kept on getting, you know, locking things up mm, in it and telling you that mm-hmm, they were locking mm-hmm. things up God. with it, not because they give you a ground mm-hmm. plan of what they, you know, where that room is. And so, you know, so they're difficult in some ways. And I, I think this is why art historians have generally not looked at the continuity of these records because it's like every 50 pages you might get a little, you know, glimmer of something. Yeah. You know, but it's through the continuity of reading through them that you start to understand the texture of urban life. And that's something that really cannot be captured. But in terms of the material culture, one of the problems with the Indian Ocean and certainly with the Arabian Peninsula is the poor survival rate of materials. Mm So um, the uh, recent book, Ship But Not Sold, is not a lavishly illustrated illustrated Mm -hmm. volume. Mm -hmm. It has Mm -hmm. some some illustrations. Many of them are comparative. You know, very few of them actually come from the context of 18th century Yemen. We can make guesses we can imagine what kind of objects arrive there based on uh, things that we found in other places, based on descriptions. Um, but in that way, text has to be used in this very um, kind of, you, know, you have to mold that text in ways to make it speak to things because those merchants, it's funny, you know, trade is about material objects and their exchange, but it, you know, they lacked a vocabulary sometimes to really talk about those things. They were just so well known to them. Interesting. That they just conveyed, you know, them in lists and, yeah. uh, uh, rather than describing them. So, what
0: would be a good example of something that, you know, was really taken for granted by the people recording it, but that stood out to you?
1: Well. Textiles. Okay. I mean, this is the, you know this is the, the I think really the uh, major issue uh, uh, with Indian Ocean history. We know that the Indian Ocean, the economy of the Indian Ocean was just driven mm-hmm. by a lively textile trade, most of which came from mm-hmm. India, and that the kinds of textiles that were coming out of India were extremely diverse, mm-hmm. right? I and mean, we have cottons and silks, and even in the realm of print of cottons, we have printed cottons, we have muslins, we have all these different kinds of textiles, um, and so. We know that's the case, that we have certain specimens of some of the grandest ones in some collections today. Uh, the Dutch, for instance, and the English give us these long lists of textiles, some of which are kind of hybridized names that have come from local mm-hmm. names uh, that are spelled in funny ways, You know that, you, can, that you, you have to work a little bit sometimes to make the connection to what it might be. But it's almost impossible to identify what all of these Mm -hmm, things are. mm -hmm. We know how much they cost. (laughs) (laughs) but We don't know what they are from a material sense, right? right. Right. So, uh, you know, we can use a cost to understand their, you know, their value. But it's really frustrating from, you know, someone like me who really want, for someone who who really wants to think about objects as objects. And I will say, you know, um, I mean, the trend has been really an economic history, for economic historians Mm to... Know, I, I've seen economicist women write full books about textile trade without even a sense of what these objects mm. are. Right? Mm. They line are line items. items. They are not things. Right. Right. And so that's really something that I try to push back against, even though, again, it's a challenge. I know why they do that, because it is not as if they have this you know, cadre this ob- you know, of objects that they can right. use right. As, um, as exemplars. But um, I think the materiality, the physicality, mm-hmm. the tactility mm-hmm. of these objects... Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is uh, part of the story to understand why someone would get on a boat (laughs) for that many months to come home with a load of whatever it is, porcelain, uh, textiles, uh, wooden furniture, you know, uh, these kinds of Mm -hmm. things, and to um, go to those lengths to bring these objects back. They had an allure and a draw that we have to try to understand as part of our understanding of the Indian Ocean trade.
0: One of the things that I also really appreciate about the book is, you know, the way you explain how it came out of the first book as, you know, you read all these documents. And as you said, maybe once every 50 pages, there would be something that would describe the the architecture that you're interested in. And, you know, you were constantly just sort of cutting through all of these repetitive descriptions of, oh, we brought these gifts and we had to sort of pay off these people. And it's so, isn't this corrupt and ridiculous and a waste of our time but then you started to think like there's something here
1: (laughs) Well, this is the kind of cautionary tale right to every phd student (laughs) who's starting off on a (laughs) dissertation they have some idea that they think is brilliant and they keep pushing on it even though it's really hard to find the sources or they're not getting the answers and you know um, now i know that I should have told myself, well maybe you should be writing the <laughs> story, not the one that you wanted to, but I, I still persisted in that stubborn way. And I think I managed to to work that one mm. out. And I, I think that answered questions that that, that set me up absolutely. to move right. forward. Um, but it was absolutely the case of th- with this whole idea of things that are shipped but not right. sold. It's a very funny idea in some ways. Um because what I had realized is that there were all of these items that they were spending this time talking about, right? That the majority of their time, you think it would be about commodities. But, uh, you know, particularly the discourse about gifts was so dominant. I mean, there are thousands (laughs) of pages about this. Um, And again, and I don't mean to be kind of so negative toward the Indian Ocean economic history, but I think what previous historians, I will say, is that they have seen trade in the most limited terms possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm trade begins from the moment, you know, when something is actually uh, transacted in, you know, in economic terms, you know, when you see, you know, when when you see the exchange of money. Right, right, right. Okay. And so then my point is actually that the gift exchange that was structurally was, first of all, structurally part of the trade. And Europeans had a very hard time reckoning with this, uh, at least certainly in the beginning Mm -hmm, of their encounter mm -hmm. in the Indian Ocean, that you simply had to give gifts Mm -hmm. to start trading. Um, And they did get it eventually, even if in their records they still (laughs) complain all the time. And they would say things like, this demand for gifts is unprecedented, when they knew it was not <laughs> unprecedented because they, they done had it done it year, <laughs> the year before right. and the year before that <laughs> and so forth, right? And so it's very interesting to, again, to look at the difference between what they actually did and, what they, and how they wrote right. about what right. they right. did, right? right. But, um, so, so when you look at these gift protocols, you really understand that th- that was actually the substance of the trade. And so, you know, I, I, some of my colleagues, because it's really, it seems very petty, this back mm. and forth. Well, no, you know, you need to give me one more, one more piece of muslin, or, you know, last year you gave us this, and, and this kind of back and forth, and, uh, that uh, economic historians have just said, oh, we don't want to deal with that. You know, let's, let's try to get to the trade. And so my point is, that is mm-hmm. the trade. The trade started when the boat arrived in the port. And the way in which that merchant was received at the Dock of Mocha set the tone if he was re- received in the right mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. He could start trading as usual if he was not given the right salute. And really, they, again, in this you know kind of petty way, fought about the number of salutes and things like that. And I had all of these Gujarati merchants no who no said, way. "No way!" <laughs> and they would turn back and they would get on their boat because they didn't want to be brought in the city into the city under the right. circumstances um, because they understood that that was part of the mm-hmm. truth that was you know that that they were beginning from that moment mm-hmm. and so that is one of the contentions that I try to make in this book um that those exchanges which we could easily dismiss as extra commercial are uh deeply connected to those processes
0: um i mean i really like in this in this book how you're able to You know, take seriously the experience that people had in this port. I think there's a tendency to sort of exoticize um, the idea of Indian Ocean trade or the European experience with Indian Ocean trade. You have these great details about, I mean, like the the diary where they're like, nothing happened today, nothing, and you get a sense of this just boredom. I mean, that these, you know, you imagine these are sort of young guys, maybe sort of adventurous enough to get on a boat and go to the, and they're just sort of sleepy town, but. so they would send these basically requests back to the motherland, the home country, and it sounded like like alcohol was really a big <laughs> number <laughs> yes. one request necessity for absolutely. performing trade. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, well,
1: for, you know, first of all, I uh, I just want to say that you know one thing that I always try to kind of push back against in terms of thinking about Indian Ocean history is a tendency that we. Uh, a lot of us kind of fall into is this celebratory mm-hmm, tone mm-hmm, about the mm-hmm. amazingness of cross-cultural <laughs> interaction, yeah. the transcendence of boundaries, and um, and you know we really have to be careful of that because this was a world of trade that was full of violence, mm-hmm. that was full of exploitation, um, and that was uh, I mean we're even thinking about the VOC, you know they sent all these ships ships full of you know of people, and uh, so many of these people were lost and died, and you know uh, and then they came back with all of these goods, right? And so I just think we Always have to watch out for that that idea of you know the celebration of global interconnectivity, right. right? And and you know and just be very careful of our tone there. But uh, yeah, you know I really wanted to get into the the fabric of that everyday life. And again, this is all that stuff that we were mentioning before that appears in these registers that I was just like, oh we go, oh you know we're getting well, again the beer and again <laughs> the wine, you know, and I'm just trying to avoid it um and and then that's when i realized that again that this whole that this was actually the book that this was the question rather about all of these materials that were sent on boats that were not meant for the marketplace yeah not just gifts but you know tons of provisions and again admittedly in this case this is all oriented around the European Mm -hmm, experience mm -hmm. because this is documented. We have inventories from these uh, European establishments or factories um, that are quite extensive. Um, And for me, the really important question was, what was important enough to put on the boat? You know, look at, I think about the cargo hold of these ships that was uh, essentially meant to carry goods that were supposed to be bought, and uh, you know, to be sold mm-hmm. for profit. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. The, you know, that is the idea that we th- that we work with. Um, but clearly spaces were being taken up for other kinds of objects. Medicine. Not surprising, right, right. Right? even though we have these great accounts of uh, the Dutch uh, surgeon or doctor going into the market of mocha sometimes and saying, oh, I need to you know, find something and trying to kind of mm. you know, uh, uh, get some of his materials locally. Um, but we have things like uh, stationery supplies, writing. And uh, I've written about this also elsewhere about how, of course, this is a paper empire mm, of trade mm-hmm. and how you know, they, they had to write. In order to trade, mm-hmm. right? They, you know this kind of obsessive document keeping, which has left to the archival remains that we have mm-hmm. in The Hague, that that was part of this infrastructure yeah. for the Dutch and the English as well. And they speak extensively about how they need more paper, what kind of quills they need, and you know, and all of this. Yeah. Uh, and that you know, th- these are obviously very important to this, to sustaining and maintaining their trade. Mm-hmm. But really, one of the biggest things that they, you know, the biggest concerns is um, is alcohol. First of all, I will tell you, there was a uh, bar, (laughs) (laughs) I guess we'll call that a tavern, (laughs) Uh, and it was located outside of the city where there was a small Jewish quarter. Uh, Apparently, uh, the wine was not very good there, and so they they, they preferred not to drink it, but they did sometimes. Um, And uh, every year, they would send shipments of uh, beer, wine, and uh, spirits. Uh, and and one of the points I try to make in the book is, you know, it's not su- that surprising actually that a bunch of uh, uh, European merchants who are very bored during the low season especially uh, would want to have some uh, drink on their table. and uh, But what is so interesting to me is how those supplies were then siphoned off and became part of the gift economy. Yeah. And so, again, so, you know, this kind of line, again, the promiscuity of objects, if you will, right, you know, moving between uh, a provision, a gift, you know, and a commodity, and how those objects, that also we've always seen as external to kind of local society, Mm -hmm. uh, were brought in, particularly for uh merchants who were engaging with local officials and merchants who were extremely cosmopolitan in their purview so right. so they had been to the ports of india and had been to southeast asia um and were quite familiar with the materials that the the dutch were pr- or that what well, the 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 provisions that they were br- bringing, and um, and, um, and were quite hungry for them apparently, uh, and it became part of the identity of this port. But I think is f- so interesting, and um, in in terms of the material culture of that too, because what I realize is when you read the Dutch documents, it's, you know, this much this much uh, beer, wine, spirits, all of that stuff came in a container and so uh, i have a piece that's coming out um actually in a few weeks that is about the dutch gin bottle oh wow because the cool. remnants of these gin bottles were found everywhere um, a colleague uh, uh of mine is uh did a study of remnants of these gin bottles in cape town uh w- you know we know that they were in mocha. we know that they were in, in india they're far as far east as as japan uh, you know in Deishima, the uh dutch uh a factory there, and I will tell you, when I was in Leiden last year, I went to an antique store, and they had a, one of these Dutch gin bottles. And he said, "Oh yeah, this was dredged up from a river in Suriname." Oh my God! And so, I, so I mean, I see that in again. I know this sounds like ridiculously mundane to some people, but to think about that legacy of alcohol provisioning, yeah. it is part of this experience, and the material trace it left was really quite significant. Yeah. And because you know, it, it it's, um, hasn't been seen as a major commodity. Mm. We haven't thought about in the way we may want to, say, track the shipments of cloves or pepper or something like that. right? But clearly, this was part of these networks um, uh, in ways that I think we need to start reckoning with. Because I feel like uh, you know, I'm, I'm making a case to two different right. groups. Right. One of them are my fellow art historians who look at some of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about, which are things like wooden chairs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or empty gin bottles, or porcelain, and not like the like the grandest imperial pieces that have come out of the kilns of Jingdezhen, but you know these little export yeah. pieces yeah. that were produced in large numbers for the Indian Ocean or for Europe, right? You know these kinds of things, and I will say m- some of my colleagues. I won't speak for all of them. Are not that impressed with this <laughs> material because this is not the stuff of art sure. history, right? This is not the stuff. This is I, I always joke. The stuff that I look at is sitting in the back storeroom of a provincial museum. It's right. not, you know, uh, on view uh, in in the metropolitan museum. You know, some of this material, sure. right? And so, so I speak to that audience when I when I call this mundane, sure. understanding those expectations. But I'm also speaking to uh, historians who, um, I think haven't thought about. You know, they know that this gin is coming in, but they haven't thought about what that means. In, again, in a Physical sense. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have gin, you have to have a bottle. And actually, you have a bottle of gin, it actually came in a case. And th- these are all material traces. These are all things that have to be exchanged. These are all objects that have to be loaded into a boat and offloaded from a yeah. boat. Yeah. You know, And so it's those processes that are so fascinating to me that I I think have been ignored in the study of the trade. Um, even though I should say there's been some uh, recent work that's been really exciting along these lines. I should just mention the work of Jessica Goldberg, who's revisited the Geniza documents and asked really interesting questions about you know, the protocols of trade. Mm-hmm. Um, Sabu Aslanian, mm-hmm. who's done the same for uh, the Armenian diaspora. F- uh, Francesca Trivellato uh, who you just mentioned. Uh, Gagan Sood, who's not actually interested in merchants p- alone, but really interested in the kind of Indian Ocean, and and how, you know, what made it cosmopolitan, how that cosmopolitanism, you know, is, is really kind of, w- you know, what the fabric of that yeah. was, how yeah. people communicated with each other uh, in writing, uh, particularly because he's dealing with letters. Yeah. But, um, you know,
0: just questions that really get into in some ways it's the human experience Absolutely. of
1: all of these large processes that that you know we're interested in. Oh
0: yeah, I um, no I mean uh, for social historians and sort of um you know the economic historians who can get so sucked into the the documents and have no idea about any of these like tactile or lived experiences. So I think it's amazing. I mean maybe to sort of pull things together towards the end we can or I mean since we're nearing the end um can we just think about like what what is the gin bottle made of and what would be the sort of like life path the trajectory of yeah. this bottle um let's yeah. say that it gets dredged up off the coast of mocha that and it was lost. Or let's not yeah. say that it was dredged up because that means that it, it never had the, uh, the chance to enter the, the sphere, yeah. but let's yeah. say it was excavated somewhere. <laughs>
1: no, 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 absolutely. These are really great questions and these are questions that I'm like precisely thinking mm. about now, actually in the afterlife mm-hmm. of the book. So, you're, you know, so you're, insp- you're kind of inspiring me to think about <laughs> projects that I've just kind of completed as well as ones that I'm moving toward. Um, and so, you know, we can trace the gin mm. bottle from Amsterdam all the way around the Cape of Good Hope uh, to uh, to Batavia, mm-hmm. which is the Dutch capital in Asia, modern-day Jakarta. And from there, that bottle might be then sent on a ship to uh, Ceylon or Sri Lanka, or it might be sent on the ship to Mocha or to Surat in Gujarat, right? And we know that they were, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the question, though, is what happens in Mocha, yeah. right? Yeah. Because, I, you know, I've never seen... Uh, Mocha has not been excavated, but even in the surveys, we haven't seen any of these come Mm -hmm. up, and so, uh, uh, you know, it is... I cannot go to Yemen right now because uh, the situation has become so dire there. Um, I now, when I, when the next time I go back, I don't know when that will be. I'm going to be looking for entirely different objects mm. than I was mm-hmm. the first time, first few times I had visited Yemen, mm-hmm. and I, when I had a completely different agenda. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, though, speaking about dredging up, though, so this is this is it, it, it's actually the right term because we are finding these Dutch gin bottles in uh, Red Sea shipwrecks. Oh wow. And for me, shipwrecks are fascinating because they uh, usually exemplify cargoes, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. right? So it's not just something that was used in a port; it was something that was b- in the process of being shipped. It may not be again for sale. So right. again, this whole idea of things that are shipped but not sold must be in our in our minds when we're thinking about shipwrecks. Yeah. Um, but it all actually shows something in movement, mm-hmm. and of course, this was a movement that failed in meeting its uh, you know its end target, right? right? Um, but there's been more and more information from shipwrecks um, that is coming forward. Uh, this requires looking at archaeological reports, which I will say um, art historians have not been good at looking uh. at because they're, they're difficult to read. Historians, I would say, have been even worse <laughs> at looking <laughs> at. And so um, I, I'm, I am moving into a moment where I want to start really trying to take this material up seriously and to really think about these different layers of access to commodities. Definitely, we have that textual, textual layer that I talked about, where we've got objects that are you know usually not described, but just mentioned or right. listed, right? Um, we have a very poor survival rate of extant mm-hmm. objects. Mm-hmm. We have a few images that show things. Um, but then we have these wrecks, which I think need to be now kind of brought into the picture in ways that are much more focused for the Red Sea and the, uh, uh, and the Gulf region. And that's a, you know, kind of a direction I'm start starting to move yeah. in. Um, to think about how all these, these all constitute these different arenas of knowing about things. And they don't match up. <laughs> you right. know as far as from my initial understanding of it you know they're not going to b- create this perfect picture right. um and there's going to be a lot of gaps between them but in some ways this really is you know, the interdisciplinarity of of this
0: i really think it's incredibly valuable to um i mean excavate whether textually or archeologically um the the mundane like day-to-day objects that people really use while they were on these um, excursions and journeys and I mean you've given us a lot so much to think about you know looking outside of of our narrow sort of especially bounded by land or bounded by sea trying to cross some of those boundaries and thinking beyond the archive itself and you know for those graduate students don't don't ignore your, uh, listen to your documents yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or else you or else you'll make yourself miserable, right? right. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, this is really wonderful. Um, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us, for being on the podcast. It was lovely conversation. Thank you so much, Zoe. Tune in next time for another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Um, If you want to uh, learn more, there's all of our episodes, further bibliographies. Um, We'll have a bibliography for this episode uploaded um, that Nancy will provide to us. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next time.